that's the whole game, like to take drugs and to be scared about the consequences of my own health. That's the whole thing. Hello, my name is Chigo. And my name is Kit. This is Hell Class Untold Lessons, a podcast that combines personal stories and factual deep dives on the healthcare experiences of marginalized communities in the U.S. It's our hope that this project creates a community of listeners that learns from and heals one another while illuminating ways for our healthcare system to improve. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not take the place of medical advice. Today, we are going to be talking about COVID-19, the vaccine, and how far we've come. With a particular look at long-term symptoms, high-risk individuals' experiences, and the safety and efficacy considerations of the vaccine. Now, on to our Fast Facts segment, where we will be providing a lightning round of high-level details on our topic of the day. So, what is COVID-19? SARS-CoV, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, is the seventh coronavirus to infect humans. Coronavirus symptoms can range from mild, like dry cough, fatigue, loss of appetite, loss of smell, and body ache, to more severe symptoms like high fever, severe cough, and shortness of breath, which can indicate pneumonia leading to fatally low oxygen levels in the body and organ failure. The long-term effects of COVID-19 are not fully known, but for those who got sick with COVID and still recovering may suffer from lasting lung damage, inflammation-based damage to the brain, or damage to other organs such as the heart or kidneys. Still, even when there are no indications of lasting damage to organs, some patients report persistent COVID symptoms. So I've heard COVID-19 is a lot like the flu. How does COVID-19 differ from the flu? Besides COVID and the flu being two different viruses, COVID-19 spreads quicker than the flu while those infected are also contagious longer, and it takes longer to recognize COVID symptoms compared to the flu. Case fatality ratio in the United States is 1.8%. In other countries, it's much higher, such as in Mexico, which has a case fatality rate of 9.1%, according to the statistics shared by John Hopkins University. At the time of this recording, 120 people for every 100,000 people in the U.S. have died due to COVID. So how many people in the U.S. have been affected by COVID-19? So currently, over 20 million people in the U.S. have contracted the virus. That is more than the entire population in New York State. There are over 4,000 deaths every day. That's more than the deaths in 9-11, like every single day. By the time this episode is released, we would probably have reached 400,000 deaths in this country due to COVID. So what exactly does it mean to be high risk? High risk individuals are identified by factors primarily related to age and underlying medical conditions, which makes them more prone to contracting the disease and getting sick. While there are no specific age for increased risk of COVID, the risk for severe illness with COVID-19 increases with age, older adults, those with asthma or other respiratory challenges, being obese, immunocompromised and those who are frequently exposed through their work. Who has COVID impacted? Although nearly all of us know someone affected by COVID-19, the disease and its complications are overrepresented in Black and Brown communities. At the height of the first wave, Black and Latinx Americans were three times more likely to contract COVID than white Americans. To this day, Black individuals are 1.4 times more likely than white people to contract the virus. 
Latinx are 1.7 times more likely, and Indigenous people are almost twice as likely to contract COVID. All of these groups are even more likely to be hospitalized or die due to COVID, with Latinx individuals seeing the highest contrast from white Americans in hospitalizations due to COVID at 4.1 times as many hospitalizations, followed by Indigenous people at four times and Black individuals at 3.7 times the rate of white people. Interestingly, although the Black population shows slightly lower rates of contracting COVID or being hospitalized with it than Latinx or Indigenous individuals, Latinx and Black people are most likely to die from contracting COVID compared to white people. This brings to mind the story of Dr. Susan Moore, who died during care after contracting COVID in Indiana, despite repeatedly asking for better care at the hospital. Another interesting fact that Asians are actually less likely than white people to contract COVID and compare similarly in deaths and hospitalizations to white people. It'd be really interesting to see how these racial groups compare to one another instead of just comparing to whiteness as a reference. Great. So today we're going to hear from Kat. As a previously healthy 24-year-old, she's not considered high risk. But after contracting COVID in March, she's still experiencing symptoms to this day. She's what those in the medical community would label long haulers. What is particularly interesting is how the systems in place failed to protect her before she became ill. It was only after she became sick with another coworker that even minimal guidelines or centralized support systems were finally implemented in her immediate community. During the early onset of COVID in the U.S., there was a lack of pandemic supplies like personal protective equipment, or PPE, and ventilators. Our government failed to issue any warnings on a federal level, which misled the public on true infection and death rates. This subsequently created a national level avoidance of creating COVID procedures for efficient contact tracing, testing procedures, and other guidance, which led states to figure it out on their own. This is our conversation with Kat. Hi, Kat. Thank you for joining us today. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Where's home? What do you do for fun? Yeah, so I currently live in Brooklyn, New York, and for fun, I really enjoy crafting and painting, and um, I'm a graphic designer by trade, so a lot of art is in my background. We have you here because we know about your very early experience with COVID when it first was spreading around the country. Do you want to tell us how do you think you got it? What was that experience like for you? Yeah, so... I was working in my office that's in Madison Square Park, and we had the option to work from home before New York City shut down properly. When was this? This was, I, I'm thinking it was like the second week of March when everything was going around, and mm. my company was like, if you don't feel comfortable, you can stay home, which was not my favorite way about doing it. I, I wish that they were just like, work from home. It's totally cool because then the burden's not on us. But yeah. I was like, I'm going to work from home. I take three trains into work and they're always crowded. So I don't think that's great for me. But um, so that was on a Wednesday. And then my boyfriend had a fever on Thursday and I had seen him that Wednesday night. And then by the time it was Sunday, I had a really long migraine. But I thought it was because like, oh, I drank a couple beers on Zoom with my friends. Like maybe it's like bad hangover or something. But then symptoms started coming in, but I never had a fever. And mm. at that point, 
I remember that was one of the only symptoms that people were like, you definitely have it if you have a fever. Mm-hmm. And I signed up for the New York City texts that were updating you about different protocols and things like that. And they're like, if you have mild symptoms, don't go get tested. There's not enough resources, things like that. So Sunday I had migraines. Monday I started getting all those body aches and just like overall not feeling well. And then by Wednesday, it felt like I couldn't breathe and I was having a hard time moving around my apartment. It just felt like like a panic attack, like a, a pressure on your chest. Um, and that was one day. And so that I took like a half day off of work, but I actually worked through most of having COVID. Why did you work? <laughs> we, it was because like there was just so much to do at my work. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm one of two designers, so there wasn't a lot of people who could back me up. Um, my boyfriend was only sick for three days and he was fine. And then I was sick for a week and a half. I, after that Wednesday, like things got better. But Mm -hmm. I didn't have taste or smell for over a month and a half. And then I called a few doctors via Zoom or however they were doing it. And they all told me not to go get tested um, and that there's not much we can do because there wasn't a lot of like knowledge about it. And there weren't a lot of tests or other people were higher priorities. Did they tell you not to get tested because you didn't have a fever? Yeah. Yeah. And that was young and it didn't look like I was like struggling even though you couldn't breathe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, I, I think like couldn't breathe. It was just shortness of breath, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I got the antibody test in July and that came back positive. But yeah, I remember just being on the video chat with the doctor and they're like, yeah, sounds like you have it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And since then I've had just like that really lethargic feeling and my chest still hurts I can't take like a full deep breath without it still hurting oh wow yeah so um I've been to three different doctors since and I'm on the waiting list for the COVID center in Union Square and I have an appointment officially with them on the 27th but there was like a two-month waiting period because there's so many people who have like symptoms that are going on for a long time what kind of help will you get at the COVID center They have like a team of a ton of different doctors, it looks like. It's like heart and lungs, and they have someone to help with like fogginess with your brain and PT Mm -hmm. people. So I'm going to see if they can help me be able to exercise again because I've just gained so much weight from not being able to like properly move. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, So, Kat, real quick question. So how did you feel initially once you started to get the symptoms were you initially scared at all i remember in the very very beginning in march when everybody was going under lockdown there was a range you know there's a spectrum of emotions where folks were like ah you know if i get it i get it whatever and then other folks were on the other side being like i'm not leaving the house i don't care how how young i am that it sounds terrifying you know, they, we get accounts from folks who are our age, right, who, similar to you, like, couldn't breathe, like, were, you know, sweats and, and, and fevers and to the point where they couldn't move. I mean, of course, you're one specific use case where you just worked through the entire thing. But, you know, that sounds like me, to be honest. But I remember being so anxious about it when, um, when it was first coming out. And I was hearing some of the first accounts from young people like us. So how did you feel? 
I feel pretty anxious. I'm an anxious person. Um, I also live on a busy street that goes to a hospital. And so, especially in New York, it was sirens all the time. And that was just like an overwhelming auditory reminder that like people are really sick in the city. And so when I started getting sick, I was trying to tell my family members it's fine. Don't worry about it. And that caused a lot of panic, which would make me kind of scared too. But I just kept like trusting. I was like, Oh, you know, like I'm in good health. Yeah. That, that Wednesday where I I, like felt that pressure, that's when I was like, Oh no, like this could get worse. But the next day was way better. It's interesting how you are still experiencing long haul symptoms when you're, you, do you consider yourself high risk? No. No, I'm yeah. pretty healthy. I I like cycle all the time and I try to keep up with like eating healthy and things like that. So it was concerning that like I was still feeling this way almost a year later, or, you know, nine months later. And the doctors that I saw, they're say they said that they've been seeing a lot of younger people who had it in March have some of these symptoms later on. And no one's given me a straight answer of like why. So Kat, how are you feeling about long-term where you're headed? You're a year in now. Where do you expect yourself to be in six months and a year from now? What are the, you know, medical professionals that you're interacting with saying, if anything? Yeah, I got a lot of tests done in my heart. There's nothing structurally wrong, which is great, but there's like still that pain there. And they told me to wait three more months and see if it's still there, which was kind of heartbreaking to hear because it's just like, I want an answer. So in three months, that will be like a full year since getting it. I'm excited for this clinic that I'm going to at the end of the month and to see if they they have different answers since they're COVID specific. And in a year, I just want to be able to exercise and go upstairs without getting out of breath. I, when getting all these heart tests done, I had to go up the subway stairs and I never like almost blacked out at the top of the subway stairs. And I used to like, mm-hmm. I used to run up those in like three inch heels. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I just really want to be energized naturally and being able to, you know, run around the city again. And I hope that we can see each other in person. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. So the tests that you had, did your doctor recommend those tests? Like how were they covered? Yeah, I have really great health insurance, which is a blessing, but it still was like 20 to $50 a visit, which definitely hurt a little. <laughs> and so I went to one cardiologist that was pretty bad. They were really unsanitary and I saw them take their masks off. They weren't washing their hands and I basically left the facility because I was like, there's no way. <laughs> I don't want to get it again. I don't even know if you can get it again. And so after that and getting a negative COVID test, I went to a different cardiologist in Manhattan that we did an EKG and that came back abnormal. So we did a heart monitor for five days to see if there's any irregularities and then an ultrasound of my heart and then a stress test. And they were all normal, which is great because that means like structurally that everything's okay. They said, the only explanation I got was that um, sometimes when you're sick, your lungs and heart will swell. And that usually goes down after you're done being sick. But they're seeing with like young people who had it that their heart and lungs stay swollen for longer. And that's the only explanation I could possibly have. I have no idea if that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. 
So this journey to like investigate what's going on with your heart, did you take it upon yourself or were you talking with your doctor and they recommended it? Like, how did you decide that you wanted to get down to what's going on? Yeah, I was, I was just, you know, talking with my mom and, and I was like, I can't function normally how I would. And I'm, I'm upset and I'm not feeling great. And I'm gaining all this weight and, and I just want to like take control of my life again. And so she was like, you should go to your primary care. So I went to my primary care and he did blood tests and he said, you should go to a cardiologist. If the cardiologist says that there's nothing wrong, we can take an x-ray of your lungs, but I don't want to do anything until you get the heart rate, heart stuff done. Mm-hmm. So then I got all the heart stuff done, which like just finished a week ago. And then I need to call him back to my primary care to see if he wants to do the x-ray or I can just wait another two weeks to go to the COVID center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like it was a self-initiated journey because you just weren't feeling like yourself. Yeah. And I, and I was like kind of Googling symptoms and I mean, that's not always fun because it always comes up with like crazy answers, but <laughs> I'm see- I was seeing some news articles about people who also had symptoms who had COVID in March and I was like, oh, maybe... I'm not alone. And maybe there's some studies out there that could tell me what was going on, but it still seems like a lot of doctors don't know (laughs) what's up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It'll be nice in the future if there was like a set exam that doctors were trained to go through with people who had COVID just to make sure that everything's all right or to address whatever problems they might have. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like every doctor has their own kind of idea of what to do with someone who had COVID, mm-hmm. but it's never the same. Yeah. Well, I hope you feel better. I'm really excited that you have an appointment with the COVID clinic. Me too. When I talked to the person on the phone in November, he was like, there's a lot of people coming, so they're getting a lot of information. Also, there's like tons of Facebook groups for long haulers. hmm I joined one and it's terrifying. So I got out of it. <laughs> I can imagine what kind of stuff was on the Facebook group. A lot of people with like teeth falling out, their hair, they're, they're having a lot of brain fog or memory loss. It was just like really like scary stuff. And every, everyone's just feeling hopeless. And that's not a great feeling. Yeah. I would like to see more hope in the future. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I want hope in people to believe in science. Well, it's not always that people don't believe in science. It's just okay. that the way science was practiced in this country was very exploitative. Mm. Yeah. Kat, thanks for sharing all of this experience with us. I think one of the most poignant things you said was, you know, I want to be able to run around the city like I used to. I want to be able to walk up a flight of stairs without feeling out of breath. And I think why that's so poignant to me is because oftentimes as young people, we, of course, feel invincible. I've seen that within myself as well as other folks. And Chico, you bring up a good point of, you know, the distrust, right? And like, what what is the perfect combination so that we can actually get people to care about themselves, if not anything else, without having the right information available? And I, I feel like we're quite a bit of ways from that. Yeah. And I think that people don't quite understand the consequences of getting it because I I remember posting on Instagram just that I'm like still having symptoms this much time like later. And a lot of people were like, I didn't even know that could happen. Like a lot of people replied back. 
that were my age. And it's just, you know, the more people kind of see themselves, I think that they will be a little bit more careful. Yeah. Especially since you are in your 20s. And I know me and other people my age were just like, you know, it's not really going to affect us that badly until we know someone who is relatively young who got sick and is still dealing with the effects of it. So it's great that you're sharing your experience and letting people know that's more serious than we think it is, especially for younger people. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully we can all get back to running around our cities. (laughs) Seriously. Yeah. Next, we're going to hear from a friend of the pod, Anisha, about her experience during COVID as someone who falls into a high-risk category. This episode is released roughly one year after the first travel-related case was reported in the U.S. and nine months after county and statewide shutdowns began. We wanted to know how COVID has affected Anisha in ways both medical and personal to see what systems, considerations, or experiences may be different for her as someone who is high risk. So we are here with Anisha. Anisha, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Where's home? What do you do for fun? Yeah, I'm based out of New York City. I'm a medical device inventor. I work in the medical device early device development stage. So that kind of means that I do a lot of different things to get a medical device idea fully fledged into the first, you know, 30 patients. And and that's basically what I do. Uh, it's the dream job. Is there like a personal relationship that you have with the work that you do? Yeah, yeah, actually. I So when I was in college, I started to not feel so well. I was having some stomach pain and and like decent weight loss. And so fast forward, you know, (laughs) 10, almost 12, 13 years later, I finally got a diagnosis for myself. It was a 10 year long process trying to figure out what was going wrong. Not all of it was really difficult, but yeah, that's, I think that's why I'm so interested in, in creating these devices for other people to help with their not only just their life expectancy, but also their their story. So this is our COVID episode, and we're talking about our year with COVID, what it means to all of us, how it's impacted our communities. And something that we hear a lot in the talk about COVID is high risk. So we want to know from you, like, what does high risk mean to you? So for me personally, I am a high risk patient, which uh, means that I have I'm immunocompromised. So I'm currently on a drug that's classified as a chemotherapy called a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, which has honestly saved my life. But what I have is basically the thing in your body that's creating an allergic reaction or that can create an allergic reaction are called mast cells. And so these mast cells have proliferated in my body to a very high level, which is the definition of cancer. And they kind of wreak havoc. So these mast cells downstream of them are what causes the the problem. So mast cells release histamine and histamine gives you the itchy, groggy feeling. And mast cells can release a whole bunch of other things, but mostly it's the histamine that's causing me my problems. And so when these mast cells proliferate, they are out of control and I get allergic reactions to just being a human being. For instance, I cannot walk into a room and have someone in that room have any sort of like perfume on. I will get anaphylaxis. It's very, like, like, it's very, very possible unless there's like some coffee brewing or some sort of like 
vent or things like that. So it just makes like normal living prior to COVID quite difficult. Uh, Fortunately, I work um, in and out of the hospital. I work with a bunch of um, men and engineers who um, take showers, but, you know, don't put on cologne. So I've just been, (laughs) I've been really lucky. But in terms of high risk, there's a lot of, of consideration. So for instance, like I live alone in New York City, but I have interactions with, you know, my family, my friends. And so I'm trying to figure out like, what is the risk of seeing other people who may be in contact with other people? And if you just kind of take that down a snowballing effect, it's just like, all right, well, like stay home and don't talk to anyone and, and don't leave your bubble ever. Yeah. But that's not really like a good human experience for yeah. me. Yeah. And how has that been amplified or changed during COVID? I mean, really, it's been really, really difficult. I haven't seen, I tried to see my family, but I hadn't seen them until Thanksgiving. And I tried to see them and I stayed with them for a little bit, but one of them was coughing and my sister's going to work and coming back. And yeah, I'm sure she's being completely safe, but it's just the amount of risk. And then like, I know what, what sterile technique is or, you know, what um, antiseptic technique is. And I know that like, it is difficult for me to do it. Like even when I'm accessing my own porticath, but for other people to do it, it's scary all hell. So I've just been limited in my ability to like hang out with my friends. Like my friend Annette is basically in my phone until like the vaccine will come out. So it's just been really difficult, but it, it hasn't been all terrible. Like I do still see my partner and he's very careful and it's, it's nice to feel that some people get it and they're willing to put in the effort. Did you or anyone you know contract COVID? Yeah, my coworkers that I was in contact with prior to COVID masking rules got antibodies, got COVID tested. I unfortunately was not able early on in, in March to get a COVID test because they were not available in New York City for just, you know, anyone. And so I was sick, very sick for six weeks, unable to really get out of bed, had fever, which is not abnormal for me in general, but it felt very close to what symptoms align with COVID. I wasn't able to really taste any food and et cetera, et cetera. But eventually I did get out of bed and started to feel a bit better. But the implication for me personally is the fact that I am immunocompromised and I may have or may have not gotten COVID and I don't seem to be producing antibodies with or without having gotten it. The implication for me personally is that even if I did get the vaccine, it's possible because of my immune system, because of my prior condition, because of this mastocytosis, I will not be able to make antibodies. We're about to hit the year mark for the first case in the U.S. By the time this episode is released, it will be officially a year. So can Mm -hmm. you describe that last year for us in addition to what you've already described and more specifically how your values have changed and how the values of others around you have changed if they have? Great question. So for me, I was supposed to start my early stage trial and be able to treat a bunch of our patients for our first early stage trial for our company in heart failure. And it is a, a technology I have been working on for five years at this point. I have seen it from a little tiny idea into this 
big, wonderful device. So early this year in 2020 was our first 11 patients in the Republic of Georgia. And I was traveling there once a week. So I was really occupied and really having some of the best time of my life, being so happy, getting into the OR and the cath lab and seeing this device change people's lives. And unfortunately, with COVID, Georgia shut down, every, you know, every place shut down, all the countries shut down. We were going to be in, you know, Australia, New Zealand, all these other amazing sites where you can see the way that the healthcare system works in all these different countries. And I hadn't had that opportunity to really be able to do that with a device like this. So that's what my, my life was going to look like. What it ended up looking like this year was a lot of data analysis from those first 11 patients and really getting to hone in on the like physiology of what was what was going on. And maybe I wouldn't have had that kind of time had COVID not happened. So I'm, I'm thankful for that because I really was able to like glean some really amazing insights that are now being patented that I think could actually change a big portion of people's lives. I feel like we figured out a way to identify these patients way better than we had before. And that was because I had the time to, to do that with COVID. For now, I think I'm going to demand way more from life and from my job and from like work-life balance than I ever had before, Definitely. which is so interesting that like, I mean, I would have been able to be so lucky to work at a job that I still love that actually has transformed over COVID. So I think like not not just to demand that, but also to realize how lucky I am for, for the job that I get to still do, even though it's it's very different than anyone thought it would be. Listening to you demanding more of your time from work, I'm just curious, do you think that our work environments are going to change post-COVID? You know, will we be setting more boundaries? Will our bosses allow more boundaries? What are your thoughts about that? Oh my gosh, I sure as hell hope so. But like, I'm a little, I'm a pessimist, but I'm also an idealist. So like my, my idealism is like, yes, like we're all going to remember this trauma and we're all going to get like held hands and try to work through it. And <laughs> realistically, no, the pessimist in me is like, okay, yeah, we're just, we're all going to get back into it and we're going to forget that COVID has happened. I, I, I hear you and I truly believe that that's probably what's going to happen. But if we find that our mental health is better by having boundaries at work and we actually may be more productive, like you said in your research, you're looking at things a bit more slowly. I think we should start asking our work to set more boundaries. No, yeah, totally. If I can interject quickly, though, I, I have seen at least in my experience, again, being cybersecurity, I feel like folks are like ready, raring for the for the normal to come back. I think people are really uncomfortable with having to sit by themselves or like sit at, at home and, and deal with all the things that they've been able to ignore because they've been able to distract themselves with the productivity and the I have more important things to do. And it makes people really uncomfortable. Like Anisha, you're an introvert and that's something that gives you energy. But for mm -hmm. a lot of people, it's the exact opposite, right? They're becoming drained, more drained because say they don't have the distraction or they don't have the social um, interactions. And that's what I've seen. I see people just waiting, itching to like go back to the gym, go back to the office, like go yeah. out and have lunch. And oh man, like, you know, and it all sort of coincides with a lot of the 
anti-mask, anti-lockdown sentiments that I've seen. I also think it's related to the pro-vaccine, like why everyone's really excited about True. the vaccine. Because they a want good point. to go back to normal. Absolutely. Absolutely. I hope that we bring some of this like awareness of our boundaries and our mental health throughout the, the next chapter of our lives. But I feel that if if you're you're one of those people who wants to bounce right back into work, I mean, I feel like a lot of us are where we want to bounce back into something. And so maybe ideally it would ebb and flow and that we would kind of bounce back to normalcy and then say, oh, you know, remember when I was at home and I had my pajamas on and boundaries and stuff? Like maybe we'll be like, okay, like let's ebb back to the boundaries. That makes sense. Although I do want to bring another perspective into this conversation. There's a good majority of people who don't have the same privileges as we do to get to work from home, to get to assert those boundaries, who are on the front lines, whether it's healthcare workers or just the folks serving fast food, right? So those boundaries don't exist for them. In fact, those boundaries have been broken down even further given the situation, especially say a grocery store employee. And I think the perspective we're talking about now is absolutely gonna come at odds with what's happening to them, right? We're living in two different worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're also living in a world that's like very capable because of them, you know, like we're able Absolutely. to be so comfortable in our homes because they're out there working. Exactly. When we think of high risk, we think of, you know, pregnant women, older women, people with like comorbid conditions. But the CDC also includes essential workers as high risk because even though they're bodies may be healthy, the fact that they are putting themselves in the front line continuously makes them more high risk for serious disease of COVID. So Anisha, tell us what are your hopes for the vaccine in the U.S. or even around the world? Yeah, it's a tough one because like there's no chronic data on COVID, obviously, and there's no chronic data on these different types of, of vaccines either. So I know for me personally, I think the risk of getting COVID without the vaccine is way worse, I think, than the side effects of a vaccine in general. If you can kind of run yourself into this circle of like risk benefit analysis and and Mm -hmm. kind of get nowhere and run around and just kind of get really stressed out. So, yeah, I I mean, obviously, I don't know. My oncologist says that I could probably probably could get the vaccine. Yay. Yeah. I will get it. I understand how scary it can be to not know and to take these drugs. But for my for me and for my life, it's like, yeah, that's the whole game. Like to to take drugs and to be scared about the consequences of like my own health. That's the whole thing. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I know we had talked earlier about your feelings and trepidations about the vaccine. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Taking the vaccine is a very personal decision. I think there's a lot of of your personal experiences with COVID and with medicine that you have to take into consideration. Like Anisha, you mentioned that like part of the game for you is like taking medications and hoping that it works. And well, I'm assuming that relates a lot to your experience with cancer. Yes. So, and for me... Uh, I have a pharmacy background, so I do understand how clinical trials work and the science behind this vaccine. But it's really hard for me to escape how the health 
industry has proven to be untrustful. It's really hard for me to escape that. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I empathize. It's very, it's very difficult. And not having that trust is, is a systemic problem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about, you know, I, when we asked folks the question, right, what are your hopes for the vaccine? A lot of the responses that I got were, you know, I don't trust the pharma industry to have my best interest at heart. So yeah, I'm not going to take the vaccine immediately. Chigo, your, your perspective makes total sense. And obviously on my side, you know, I'll take the vaccine whenever I can. You know, I understand, well, I've done the research on understanding why it was done so quickly. And, you know, we had the, you know, all the right circumstances for it to be done quickly because we are in the middle of a pandemic. Um, <laughs> but I guess, you know, I understand uh, the trepidation of it even having happened so quickly. Yeah. yeah. And it, I mean, it sounds like I, I'm setting up a dichotomy here, but it's like, take the vaccine or don't take the vaccine. But there's also like, take the vaccine and at what point, right? But yeah, I think that for me, at least, I know the science roughly. I know the science behind the vaccine. I know the science behind how vaccines are made and how these ones are. And I've seen like as much chronic data as we'll probably get. And I am still hoping that one, I take this vaccine and two, it works for me with my weird ass immune system. Totally. Yeah. To your point about the dichotomy, Anisha, we're also in a culture that sort of thrives on divisiveness. So I think the narrative is pushed to that dichotomy just naturally, organically by where we are, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's so unfortunate, but yeah, it's like, it's easier to think in binary than it is to think in non-binary. <laughs> Absolutely. In addition to our two interviews, we asked our network about their experiences with COVID and feelings about the vaccine. It became clear that our hesitancies towards the vaccine were shared by respondents who are people of color. Something that's really important to note, outside of the COVID vaccines, Black and Latinx individuals are less likely to be immunized due to a variety of reasons that is not fully understood by the medical community. I did some research to look into why they think Black and brown people are immunized less likely. Mm -hmm. They um, gave reasons such as access. They don't go to doctor's visits as often. They have worse health status and comorbidities. So preventative care such as vaccines just aren't that much of a priority for doctors. Mm -hmm. Just general, not really knowing much about the vaccines and attitudes about distrust with the medical community and concerns about being experimented on, which I can definitely see in the COVID vaccine hesitancy. Right. Also, they mentioned medical implicit bias and also just poor relationships between Black and Brown communities with their providers, just feeling like there isn't a partnership where they're not really being heard. That totally makes sense, just from my own personal experience. But also when I think about having been a kid, I didn't have health insurance from like 18 to 22. Oh. And I didn't do anything about it because I was like, well, hopefully I don't get sick. Oh. <laughs> and um, and I didn't have health care because I was in college. And so I prioritized paying for college. So that's a really interesting thing to note. I sometimes forget about the access and how important that is, you know? Yeah, access is a huge issue. Another thing that you listed resonated with me was this distrust between providers and patients. Yeah. 
again, like I've just had multiple instances where with, you know, just to be frank, like the doctor's an asshole and I don't want to interact with mm-hmm. them. And I'd rather just leave than even have gone at all. Yeah. Therefore, I avoid it, especially with white male doctors. Like I would prefer to not ever interact with one at all. Yeah. My general care physician now is a white man. And the only reason that I go to him is because he's the one doctor in the entire university healthcare system who has the ability to certify you for medical marijuana card. There's only one. You know, in Pennsylvania, you know, we have medical marijuana usage. You could get a card. And out of the university healthcare system, there's only one doctor who can certify you for that and sign off so that you can get a, a medical marijuana card. And he has to be listed on your healthcare as your primary physician for you to have him certify you. And I'll be honest with you, good enough, dude. But like, am I having cool conversations with him? No. I went to him about two months ago to get, honestly, sleep meds because I was having trouble sleeping. And similarly as to last year, he just basically was like, well, if you have generalized anxiety, which I was diagnosed with, you just need to get on an SSRI. He was just like, you need to get on antidepressant meds. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's the only thing that's, that's the only way that I really co-sign medical marijuana cards. He had given it to me kind of reluctantly last year but he was pushing it again this year. So like, again, like it was like maybe a 15 minute conversation about I can't sleep and here, take some anti-anxiety meds. Mm -hmm. And that was it. And like, cool, I'll sign off on your medical marijuana card. It was super, super weird. I had a much, much better conversation with the nurse and she was a black woman, a queer black woman at that. Mm -hmm. And like, that just felt so much more personal than even like, again, that interaction I had with them. So none of that is a surprise to me, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I bet that you can't really say that you trust this doctor's judgment a hundred percent of the time. No, no. I mean, I was so hesitant to even start these anti-anxiety meds. Like I still don't necessarily feel like great about them. I, I go to him for one reason and one reason only. And you're probably like one of hundreds and hundreds of people of color who feel the same way about their provider. Just like, I'm going in for this specific need, you know, just give me what I need. I don't really trust you. I don't really feel like you're seeing my whole complete self and you're trying to work with me to fit where the health that I want to have, you know, and then when you add it to this completely new vaccine, new vaccine with like this new technology that most people haven't heard of, you know, how can you expect a lot of people to trust their doctors when they say, yeah, you really need to take this vaccine if, you know, they don't really have a good relationship with them? Yeah, and I would argue that most of the people who are even thinking about the vaccine in one way or another, whether it's he- hesitancy or being first in line to get it, they don't know about the technology behind it. They just know about it as a vaccine. Yeah. And they understand it with the very basics of how vaccines work. So let's talk about the how vaccines work and the technology behind vaccines. Vaccines, traditionally, they contain the germ or an aspect of the germ, like a little protein that's introduced to your body to elicit an immune response. And when your body develops an immune response, there's usually, you know, sometimes a low-grade fever, um, nausea, fatigue, headache, and your body develops antibodies and, you know, these fighter molecules that fight against the disease if you're introduced to them again in the future. What's so special about the COVID-19 is that the way that the infectious protein is introduced to the body is through mRNA. 
which was developed by Dr. Carrico. She is a former professor at UPenn um, who developed this technology years, years ago. And mRNA basically has the directions on how to make the spike protein of the COVID virus. So you inject bodies with the directions on how to make the protein and your body develops the protein on its own instead of directly injecting the protein into the body. After developing the virus protein, your body develops antibodies to be able to detect and fight off COVID in the future. So this new technique, which many people don't really know about, like most people don't really know that this is our first mRNA vaccine to come about is pretty cool. It's pretty interesting. But also, I don't really know how many people know that the fact that this vaccine was created and like, like they got the the genetic code for COVID, I believe in like January of 2020. And, you know, two vaccines were approved at the end of 2020. It was less than a year that these vaccines were developed and approved through an emergency use authorization. It isn't technically FDA approved. What is an emergency use authorization? So emergency use authorizations are kind of like approvals that the FDA gives in special circumstances where there isn't anything available at the moment to help. So previously, EUAs were developed during like the H1N1 endemic, Ebola, the Zika virus endemic, and COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic that we have right now. And we've had some approved EUAs for some rapid tests that we use during COVID, some rapid tests, some unique different types of PPE. Yeah. So now we have these EUAs for the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. Can I circle back to the mRNA technology? Mm -hmm. So the way that I'm understanding it from a technology lens is basically you're inserting um, downloading a program, right, that to your computer that will essentially teach your computer how to address the virus. Is that kind of what it's like? So it's like downloading a program into your computer that makes a part of the virus. And then your computer recognizes that it's a virus and kills it off. And mm. then in the future knows to always kill off this virus. Okay, cool, cool. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, that makes more sense. See with your cybersecurity background. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I had to. I had to. Because that's what it sounded like. That's what it sounded like. And one of the other questions that I've generally had about vaccines is like, is the vaccine itself the shot? Or is a shot one way to administer a vaccine? So a shot is the way to administer the vaccine. There are other ways, like the flu vaccine, there's the intranasal method, you know, just like inhaling a mist. Uh, um, but basically to vaccinate is to introduce a substance to your body that elicits an immune response to defend yourself in the future. So commonly it's in the form of shots and injections just because that's the best way to the body can uptake this genetic or protein or whatever it is, mm -hmm. um, but it can be in other ways. It doesn't have to be a shot. Okay. Now that you're mentioning the, the nasal administration, now I'm starting to recall that those even exist. So are there other ways that people have administered vaccinations in the past? 
Yeah. So the way that vaccines were first, or the person who's considered the father of vaccines, Jenner, he used to just like cut sores on people, just like make an incision and introduce cowpox to them because he found out that if people were infected by cowpox, they would be immune to smallpox. Mm -hmm. So, you know, cowpox is a variant of smallpox. So they would just like introduce that to them. Um, even though Jenner is known as a father of vaccines, this form of vaccination has been used for centuries in parts of Asia and Africa. But, you know, we recognize the Western founders more than we recognize others. Right, right. As is custom. <laughs> so I guess something else that I've wondered about, because obviously we're thinking about the reluctance to get vaccines within Black and brown communities specifically. But from my perception, when I think about the anti-vax movement, it's not black and brown. It's mostly white, to be honest. And I think about, what is her name? Jenny McCarthy? Um, is Jenny McCarthy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think about her and like the linkages to to how vaccines cause autism and that problematic mess, right? And um, how that's more of like a modern day sort of movement, so to speak. And I'm curious whether or not the response to Jenner back in what, the 1800s or whatever it was, was similar at all. Yeah, it actually was pretty similar in the 19th century, there was this vaccination act that was passed in 1853 that made smallpox vaccination mandatory for families. And there was a lot of pushback then when that happened. A lot of families, a lot of parents felt that they have the right to refuse. They shouldn't be forced to vaccinate their children because they are British citizens and they have the right to say yes or no. And I think that that's something that's coming up again with the resurgence of anti-vaxxers, but also it comes with the other element of misinformation with a belief that flu vaccines and other vaccines may cause autism. Mm-hmm. So it's just like I guess it's a mix of practicing your right as a citizen and also just understanding what is in the vaccine. I do personally relate to, I I do agree with, you know, you shouldn't be forced to vaccinate someone Mm -hmm. with this COVID-19 vaccine that's out. I've heard people share like, oh, maybe jobs will start mandating it. Brother said that like it was hinted at his physical therapy clinic that he might have to take this vaccine once it becomes available to them. And I think that that's not really fair. You know, this vaccine hasn't officially been approved by the FDA. It just has an emergency use authorization. So Mm -hmm. to people to take this vaccine kind of strips them of their liberty. but. At the same time, people do deserve to be informed about what is in this vaccine and how the vaccine works, which to me personally, it circles back to the relationship that communities have with the medical industry. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of paternalism in the medical industry and this belief that, oh, if you're against vaccines, you don't believe in science. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You don't understand science. And maybe it's just you haven't made science like understandable Right, right. Made it like something that I can really comprehend. Totally. And then it just, I don't know, it just 
turns into this very toxic relationship. Like, oh, you should be listening to me. Or like, oh, you're stripping me of my rights. And we're not getting anywhere from this. Yeah. And of course, the political climate in the U.S. doesn't make that any easier, right? Because it provides a very clear cut example of what not listening to science kind of looks like. But yeah, when I think about like in England, people being like, you know, I'm a British citizen. I deserve freedom to say no. It just reminds me so much of like, anti-maskers exactly exactly more more than anything right Mm -hmm. anti-maskers wow like yeah exactly yeah and also just like when i think about anti-maskers and anti-vaccinators and when in terms of covid19 i'm not sure if they're both as harmful because with this vaccine we don't know if you can still transmit it to other people you know right only really known to keep yourself safe it's not really there isn't much information about how well it keeps other people safe. I agree with you, right? If folks who are getting vaccinated still have to wear masks and socially distance, then yeah, I mean, like, where is that? What is truly the difference aside from protecting yourself there? So now I have a, a subsequent question on the development of the vaccine and the time it took, right? So that's like a lot of people's concern, especially with what you're saying with the emergency use authorization. How does the time in which it was developed threaten the validity of the results that we're reporting now and therefore the potential results with the rollout? And how is it different from other vaccines? All the phases were just much shorter. For example, the phase three trial for this vaccine had tens of thousands of participants compared to hundreds of thousands of participants. Also, they weren't followed for a longer period of time. The Moderna and Pfizer studies are still being researched and they have like a two-year follow-up period, which is customary for vaccines just to see long-term effects. So Mm -hmm. with this COVID-19 vaccine, we cannot say for sure what the long-term effects are. It's still unknown. Basically, it's just we haven't seen how it works for as long and in not as many people as we normally would have. And also the time to review the study by the FDA was much quicker. It usually takes months to review studies by pharmaceutical companies. And with this EUA, it was in a matter of weeks. So just how thorough the FDA was in authorizing this, the amount of people in the study, the length of the study. So we can't be as sure as we would like to be about this vaccine. So you had mentioned that it's technically not FDA approved. What does that mean? I mean, EUA aside, how does that apply? Like, what are the what were the standards for FDA approval? Is it the longer period of time for all of these phases that you were just talking about? I don't know if the FDA has a minimum requirement of how long the phases are. It's just the nature of reviewing the research is different because it was okay. Harder. Okay. Yeah. So throughout the whole process, my view on the vaccination has kind of evolved. So when we were first talking about this topic, I was certainly amongst the more hesitant folks to get the vaccine. Just again, calling back to what I said earlier, not a fan of the medical community, not a fan of getting medicine in general. But as time has gone on, you know, I've spent longer periods of time uninterrupted in my home alone (laughs) and like going to the grocery store or like us talking here is like my largest or longest prolonged exposures to other people. I'm starting to rethink my own opinion 
Um, (laughs) Right. I just want to dance in a sweaty club, man. Yeah. Right. I just want to sit down at a bar and like have a drink and meet a stranger, to be honest. Um, It's been a while. It's been a while. But anyways, I've, I've warmed up to the idea of getting a vaccine if it means that I can go out without worrying as much. It's interesting to have seen my own evolution of that. And I'm curious how that may or may not impact people in the same way, right? Yeah. Especially people in our communities, black and brown communities who, COVID aside, right? Our support systems are already sometimes smaller just based on the fact that, you know, we go to work in predominantly white white places, you know, we live in predominantly white cities, so on and so forth. And the isolation, I would assume, the isolation probably impacts black and brown communities a lot more in some ways. I live in Philadelphia, so I think it's a little bit different here. But folks elsewhere, I think, are really feeling the, the impact of, of the isolation. And I'm curious if that's going to impact how they view the vaccine. Yeah, I'm curious, too. And also what's frustrating to me is the vaccine seems to be our only way out. You know, mm-hmm. what if what if we were all paid to stay at home for a few months at the beginning of the pandemic? You know, there would not have been so many deaths. You know, what if our national leaders didn't make COVID so political so that we didn't have anti-maskers? We don't have to worry about people in the community who might spread it to us and get other people more sick and to die. I think that honestly, yes, it's great that we have this vaccine. It's great that we have a way out. But also I want us to question what could have been no you know, absolutely. protections what kind of supports could we have that would would have been better it was well researched i'm not going to say that it was poorly researched it was very thorough but it's still very new and it's still pretty unknown and you know there are a lot of people who are hesitant and even the the way that we address hesitancy is very condescending you know it's not very compassionate or understanding way so Definitely. yeah i think we just, we could have been better. Like this didn't have to be our only way out, but since it is, come on, man, just give me the vaccine and I'll take it. I also was hesitant about it, but I'm here with my first dose, about to take my second dose in a couple weeks because yeah, I'm just over this. I'm over staying in my house. I got COVID and I don't want to get it again. I'm afraid of what it will do to me and how sick I'll get. But yeah, it's, it's hard. It's real out here. Yeah, and when you, you mentioned like this not being the only way out, I'm I'm curious. I'm more curious about that because obviously it would have been ideal. Yeah, pay people two thousand bucks for a couple of months, like every two weeks, so that our infection and death rates aren't as extreme. But would that truly eradicate the virus? I wouldn't say it would re- eradicate the virus. We probably would have had less deaths. Um, and it mm-hmm. wouldn't be, it wouldn't feel as urgent as it does right now. When I think about New Zealand, I believe they had a basic income. They also had amazing contact tracing. Like their public health infrastructure was very strong. It was well invested and it was very ready to address this pandemic. I read a story how they were able to trace a contraction of COVID to like an instance in the elevator. That's how well their contact tracing was. If we invested more in our public health and our public health infrastructure, we would not have had as many deaths and this wouldn't feel as urgent to all of us. Like our death toll is just astounding. Though I don't know of any country at this moment who has completely eradicated COVID. They probably have lower numbers than us, but it's not completely Mm -hmm. gone. And how big is the population of New Zealand? Uh, I'm not sure, but I think it's smaller than the U.S. 
I think it's a New Zealand, like a tiny island. (laughs) But we can do it, man. We can do it. I believe in us. Even like in states, like there are certain states that maybe could have done it better. Maybe they could have invested in their public health infrastructure better. Maybe they could have had more support from the national government to do these things. I think it's possible. It's not just because we're a big state, we're doomed to have more deaths. I think we can think creatively about how we can address our population given our size. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. That's not to be contrarian in the way that that it came off as. <laughs> More so to say, obviously, it's just different scales at which we're competing. But I definitely agree that we could have been better. I mean, I think it goes without question. I definitely think it would have been an, a good upfront investment as opposed to us still feeling the impact as big a year later let alone it being almost half a million people in our country who are dead. Yeah, yeah. I saw on Philadelphia subreddit all these articles about Philly fights COVID and the total fraud that it was, mm-hmm. you know. Um, people are, are up in arms and I keep hearing about how, you know, the government is kind of like well known for this behavior and that it's no surprise that this like, you know, college kid got this contract with the government to distribute and like provide COVID vaccinations. Um, And now it's like made national news and stuff like that. So like, how did that happen? Like how do these vaccines come to us? How does the government handle them and how do they get them to us? How is, how is this possible? So there are contracts like Philly Fights COVID had um, with the city and the city has contracts with the state and the state gets distribution from the nation. So each state allocates their vaccine supply to different jurisdictions, to different counties or cities, and then it's up to the cities to create vaccine hubs or like little stations where they give out the vaccine and they have to have contracts with those areas. So Philly Fights COVID, they were like an organization that was providing vaccine hubs and they contracted with the city to get some allocations of the vaccines to distribute to certain areas. So, you know, thinking about that pipeline, that little train to get the vaccine out, you have nation giving it up to the state. Mm-hmm. And the way I think about it is just like, what are the things that could go wrong? You know, you could have the nation decide like, oh, certain states get more than other states, you know, it might not be an even distribution, Mm -hmm. but larger, more populous states need a little bit more compared to other states, you know, and then the state divides it up to each jurisdiction, still kind of the same mindset. And then where it gets really messy is when those jurisdictions decide what hubs to distribute the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And I think that little part of the pipeline is where we find a lot of issues because, for example, Washington, D.C., they found that um, certain zip codes where there are a lot of COVID deaths are Mm -hmm. primarily black and brown, but that's not where a lot of people are getting vaccinated. It's actually in the wealthier, whiter parts of the city. Hmm. And it's just, it brings to mind like who, how do they decide where to set up hubs? How do they decide to target people in these different phases? How do they 
spread their messaging? Is it targeted to those who are actually dying? Mm -hmm. Or are they just making it equal? You know, this is where you think about equal versus equitable. Right. You know, we're not doing equal anymore, guys. We're doing equitable. We understand that not everyone needs the same thing. Right. It has to go to what we need. So Dallas County, Texas, that's a county that they thought, okay, let's be equitable. Mm -hmm. They noticed that there are certain zip codes that are primarily black. Mm -hmm. They were very hit hard by COVID. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to set up vaccine hubs in those counties. And the state said, no, if you do that, it's unequal. So we will not give you your vaccine distribution. There was a whole argument about it in their county hearing very volatile. I read like a town article about it. They're like the mayor, the commissioner, blah, blah, blah. It was really cute. But um, they eventually just set up the hubs in the primarily white neighborhoods because the state refused to give them vaccines if it was like targeted. So I don't know. It's just, Hmm. I feel like we should know better at this point. You know, we know that black and brown people are disproportionately dying from this. Why aren't we sharing with them resources that has the potential to get them better? And something that I'm worried about, and I've heard other people mention this too, is that they might use the black community's hesitancy for the vaccine as an excuse as to why they aren't targeting us to give us oh, these allocations, yeah, you know? Of course. <laughs> of course, right? Yeah. You know, of course. It's like, well, the black people, they don't really want this vaccine. So why should we even try to give it to them? And not, it's just like, if it's good for you, why isn't it good for anyone else? Mm-hmm. Or why would you try to restrict it from anyone else? So that being said, is there any hope? <laughs> is hope. there any hope? Hope, hope, hope. Just that word that I struggle with. But in being the optimistic person that I am, yes, there is hope. You know, we have this vaccine that's rolling out. There are a lot of people who are getting vaccinated. In my state, they're moving from phase 1A to phase 1B, which is improvement. That means that those in 1A, a sufficient amount have been vaccinated. And I guess we'll just wait and see. We'll wait and see in a few years what are the long-term effects so far, there haven't been that many allergic reactions to the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Mm-hmm. There's still some other companies that are waiting to approve the vaccine. And the World Health Organization has a program to administer like 2 billion vaccines to other countries in the world. So there, there's hope for us and our nation. And there also there's also hope for other countries to get everything back to normal. But I don't know. We'll just wait and see because we also have this new variant that's more contagious. (laughs) But, you know, we'll see. I think what would make me more helpful is if as a community, we start prioritizing each other over just ourselves and over our wallets. I think that if we learn how to support one another and think about one another and care for one another, you know, that would truly help diminish the effects. But I just don't think we're there as a people yet. So we'll just have to wait and see how this works. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people take cues from our government institutions. And hopefully this transition can raise a light of hope in one way or another. Politics sort of aside there, that there can be at least some guiding light that is less divisive and less purposefully divisive that can 
really drive that desire to care about more than just oneself. I guess my takeaway from this is for people to, in making decisions, make decisions that uplift the community, not the community. When I say the community, I usually mean the Black community, Mm -hmm. but not just the Black community, community, everyone, you know? So if you're thinking about traveling, you know, would that really uplift the country that you're going to? Not really if you're spreading diseases to them or whether choosing whether or not to wear a mask or choosing whether or not to get vaccinated. I think it would be nice and I would be a lot hopeful if more people when making decisions thought about their community and how it would affect other members of the community instead of just thinking about themselves. Absolutely. I think humans in general need to think more outside themselves and I don't know, hopefully we evolve to get to that point. Thank you to our producer Annette. Our behind the scenes team Maya and Hannah. And our researcher Caroline. Thanks also to our early followers for believing in us. Please follow, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at healthclassuntold or by subscribing to our website, healthclassuntold.com. Feel free to send us your thoughts or a voicemail. We would love to hear how you personally relate to what we discuss or your ideas for future episodes. Hopefully aliens beam me off this planet. (laughs) 